On today's More Than a Test, we have Angelica Infante Green. She is the state commissioner for Rhode Island, but she's not from Rhode Island. You are about to hear a crazy story about her path from teaching in the South Bronx to becoming a principal, to working in the NYC DOE, to the state agency in New York, to now leading in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, this position is appointed and she has been appointed by not one, but two governors who really believe in her. And I am not surprised because if you hear the list of things she has accomplished in a very short time in Rhode Island, it is going to blow your mind. She is such an inspiration as an educator, as a human, as a mother, um, as a leader. This is just one of those conversations that is going to fill your whole heart. And I am so excited to share it with you. Um, please be with us today for more than a test. Angelica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, it's crazy because it is a couple of days before Christmas and what you are running a little bit late because you're coming from a budget meeting. Is this just your life? Is that all the time there is something? Are you hosting for Christmas? I have to know. <laughs> yeah. So I just got out of a budget meeting with the governor's office. So this is what it's like. It's intense, <laughs> nonstop. And I am hosting. And not only am I hosting, I'm hosting in another state. So I'm hosting in New York. So it's a little crazy. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. So you're from New York or you spent a long time in New York and now you're the commissioner of Rhode Island. I have to ask you, the commissioner is a little bit different in every state. Are you an elected position or an appointed position? No, I'm an appointed position. Oh, great. So the governor appointed you in 2019, am I right? Correct. And it was another governor. So my governor that appointed me left to become the secretary of commerce. Oh, great. And so then a new governor came in and obviously they're so impressed with your work. They've kept you on. Um, but that's kind of a crazy time to be the commissioner of education in that from 2019 till now, we've had like crazy COVID declines in, in education and, and literacy and scores across the board. You know, tell me about it. What is it like to be the commissioner in Rhode Island? Well, I came in um, at the beginning of May in 2019. And as you know, eight months later, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And in those eight months, um, it was so crazy because um, we took over the state, meaning my office took over Providence, our largest school district. Oh, wow. We had a lot of listening sessions with parents, with educators, and we made the tough decision in November. We finally got a superintendent for the district in February, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really unbelievable. Um, what was exciting about that time is that I got really close with the other um, commissioners in New England. So we have, and we still have a standing call every Thursday morning. Wow. Where we kind of, we, we work through COVID together because part of our job is not just to lead the education. It's also very political, wow. which is the challenging part of this job. And right now the secretary of education was one of my closest um, allies during the um, the pandemic. We were talking every day because he was in Connecticut and we were just kind of, okay, what do you think? What are you going to do? Are you going to open? Are you not? And we were able to open our schools right in June. So okay. we shut down in March and we opened our, our summer school in June, but we took a different approach than other people. Um, we ran things from the state. So we used our money to buy assessments because there were no assessments that year, um, statewide assessments. And we bought interim assessments for all the districts because I needed data. I needed to know what was happening to our kids so we could make real decisions. So we did that and we decided that we were gonna run summer school from the state level. So we put everybody together, we made the resources available, 
And we did it K through 12 across the state, which was pretty amazing. Wow, that that is amazing. And I think it's so interesting to hear because I think in some states, the state agency isn't as active as it sounds like you are. And in some places, like you're very active. You, you mentioned so many things that I want to hit on. So let's talk, start with Providence, um, because there's a lot. Of, I mean, first of all, so is Providence the largest district in Rhode Island? It is. It's the largest and it's our capital city. OK, and I don't think many people I know I didn't understand until more, somewhat recently that a state agency can take over a district. What does that look like? What does that mean? How do you make that decision? Well, I think, uh, you know, we looked at the data, we looked at the, the student failure, but it wasn't just a failure. It was the systemic problems that have existed. Every single mayor has tried to improve the school system. Um, they have made bold moves and and haven't gotten any traction. So it was problems with HR. It was problems with special education. It was problems with um, certification. I, I mean, any situation that you would think of was happening in Providence. The system was completely broken, um, so much so that, um, you know, parents felt very um, disempowered. Students really felt like they could not get support in the schools. The teachers felt the same. It was a system that sort of had been written off. So we have these metrics that we use, and we made the tough decision that we were going to take it over. And we talked to the community, and what we did differently than in, in, in other places is that we worked on metrics for um, the district with the community. We had about about 70 hours of meeting with community members where they dedicated their hours and they helped us write our plan. And that's what we led with, was community plan. And it was hard. Some people were opposed, some people were happy. Um, it was a very difficult decision. And some people felt like we were sort of taking something from them. And the way that we saw it is that we were going to shield the district from all the things that have been happening in the past and give it the opportunity to um, create systems and structures so that it can move forward. And one of the biggest um, impetus was we brought in Johns Hopkins and they walked into our schools. And these people go to um, different districts around the nation and they said this was the worst district that they had been to. Matter of fact- Oh my gosh. Yeah, some of the reviewers were crying, left the classroom in tears, tears. Okay, let me ask you one hard question and then I'm gonna ask you a couple of details questions. So the hard question I wanna ask you is, you know, you took it over in 2019. There's no way you could have expected a pandemic. At any it, point, did you regret taking it over? I mean, that would have to be so much work, right? It would, if, you, if you had left it in their hands, it would have been their mess. At any point were you like, oh man, I wish we hadn't done this? Um. No, I didn't think that. Mm -hmm. I was just yeah. thinking, um, what did I get myself into? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, how I, I never knew it was going to be this hard. And I never knew that, I, you know, because I'm essence have two jobs to do, the state level job and the, and the district job in the right. midst of a pandemic. Um, I didn't regret it. But let me tell you, there were a lot of sleepless nights. Well, I, I can I can only imagine just how many sleepless nights and what a huge decision to make your first year. I mean, I think so many people think their first year is like the learning year. And you were just like, we got it. We kids can't wait is what I hear. Right. Um, That's which is right. really great. But some of the things I, I you know, I spent some time reading about Providence and, and what I saw was two of the big things were that 50 percent of the kids need new facilities. Is that true that the buildings in Providence are that like decrepit, that decrepit and oh, wow. 
Yes. Yeah, so they, they, you know, they put out buckets every time it rained in this particular school, it would rain right into the school. We had bricks falling off of buildings. We have a picture that I show of one of the schools where it really looked like an abandoned building, like nobody had been there. I describe it as New York City in the early 80s with all the graffiti. It, it, it was really um, a, a really sad state of affairs. When you walked in there, I, I had a parent meeting and the ceiling was falling, like the chips were falling. I, I, I always say it was snowing in this auditorium. And this is what they had. This is what was normal. This that they, they weren't even complaining about it. Wow. That's I, I feel like that's something that people don't realize is even, no matter how bad the schools are, teachers and kids continue to show up, um, but, even though that's not the conditions they should be in. Something else that I saw was a big, you know, kind of movement for you is extending the school day. Tell me a little bit about that choice. Yeah. So we had to. So, uh, I mean, the kids were already behind prior to the pandemic. And then we get this pandemic and the kids in Providence and most of our urbans were hit the hardest. The majority of the kids in Providence are Latino, and in our community, they were hit so hard. They were most impacted by COVID. Many of our kids lost their parents, um, grandparents, um, housing is secure because of the pandemic. So, so many things shifted in an already tough situation for these families and these kids. So we had to double down and say, listen, this is the right thing to do. The federal government gave us money. We need to do this. We need to try to make up some of the time. And extending the day for us has actually given us an extra 15 days, which is pretty amazing. Wow, that is amazing. And I don't think people realize just how big of a difference that can make for kids. Um, so, you know, when I think of Rhode Island, I think of like a quaint beach town, right? Like I don't think <laughs> of, you know, a, a school in a dire situation, um, even with just facilities or kids who are far behind. So how's Providence doing now? Much better. So we have exceeded yeah. our our pre-intervention numbers in math, which is an area that we have struggled with. So we're making progress. Um, I think we would be much further along if it weren't for the pandemic. But what I do see is that, you know, 50% of our kids are in new or like new buildings. They will be in by next year. At the end of 2025, all the kids, I mean, all the kids will be in new or like new buildings. Like, I, I can't even tell you the the water fountains and they call them bubblers here. You couldn't drink out of them because the water th there was there were problems with the water. So all that we're in a different place. We now have a curriculum. Before teachers had different curriculum on the same grade. So I can be a third grader and I have a friend in another class and they were learning something totally different. So we have a common curriculum now, which is a big deal because Providence did not have that. It was sort of a free for all. So we have that, we have professional development. When I came in, there was only one professional development day a year. Oh my gosh. Um, now we have 10, which is pretty exciting. That's you know, so huge. That's incredible huge. for teachers and for you to be able to make changes. I mean, one of the big changes across the country and that we talk a lot about in the show is science of reading. And the yes. research we're seeing is it, it takes tons of work for a teacher to move from balanced literacy to science of reading. So 10 days of professional development might be making the difference in, in literacy rates across your across Providence. Across Providence, but across the state, we, we work to get um, the Right to Read Act. Um, and that means that everybody has to be, there's two levels, either an awareness of the science of reading and mastery in the science of reading. And everybody K to 12 in our system has to do awareness 
and K to eight has to do the mastery. So we are we are a hundred percent behind the science of reading. I was trained in the science of reading as a teacher that changed my life, changed the life of the kids that I was teaching. I wanted to, after I learned how to actually teach reading, I wanted to go back and apologize to all the kids that I had taught before because I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was picking random words because it was October or they were going to learn Halloween or they were yeah. going to, you know, there was no rhyme or reason. So I, I'm a big proponent. I have been trained for over 20 years. So this is really meaningful to me and really important. Well, and I think what you just said is what I hear so much from teachers is I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back to those kids that I had before I was trained. And, and, I, and, it's, and it's, I'm sure you understand just how much training it takes. And I think that's something that teachers are kind of reckoning with as well. Um, you said across the state, and so I have to, I, I want to move this because like we could talk about Providence all day. The work that you've done there is so amazing. But you you serve the whole state of Rhode Island. Um, mm-hmm. And and when I was reading your letter to the community and you called it a state on the move, why is Rhode Island a state on the move? And and what are you doing? What, where are you moving? <laughs> so we are, well, we have the right to read. Everybody's getting trained. But we also changed our secondary regulations last November in the midst of all this pandemic and all this noise that's happening, we were able to pass our secondary regs. And what that means is that every student in Rhode Island has to have computer science. Every student in Rhode Island has to get civics. Every student in Rhode Island has to have a world language, um, financial literacy. Um, But the other piece is sort of blowing up the Carnegie units. We have said that you don't have to sit in the classroom. You don't have to do those hours if we can prove or have other opportunities that meets the same standard and rigor. So we are unpacking that right now. We're really excited. We have a couple of pilot schools because one of the things that we know, kids in poverty, kids of color, multilingual learners, we have never really been meeting their needs in our education system in, in, a, in a real meaningful way. So we're trying to tackle you know, high quality curriculum. That's a requirement in the state of Rhode Island. They can choose from anything that is green on ed reports, and we make the recommendation of five, so they can choose from five. So we have the curriculum, we have the science of reading, and now our secondary regs, we try to make sure that a Rhode Island diploma actually means something, and that's what we've done so far. And we're sort of, you know, the school day doesn't have to look the way that it does. If a child has to work, and that's what we found during the pandemic, they're not going to choose to come to school. Like we shouldn't make them choose. We need to be more flexible and meet the needs so that the kids can work and come to school. So that's what we've done. Well, and I think what we hear so much from high school and middle school students is like these things they're doing outside of school are so important. It's not just that they have to work, but it also is a value for them that we're not understanding. So since you came, so you've been there since 2019, you've dealt with a pandemic, you've taken over a district, you've had the Right to Read Act, you've overhauled high school. Um, is there anything I'm missing that you're really proud of? Or what is the thing you're most proud of that you've done since coming to Rhode Island? So w- one of the things that I am most proud of is, um, you know, the multilingual learners were sort of absent from the conversation here. I am a first generation um, American. And for me, it was really important that these students be seen. So we created the multilingual learner blueprint for success. And we brought everyone together and really created these principles that guides the work. And not only did we back it with that, we're going to have regulations that support that. We also put it into our accountability system 
So we have a five-star accountability system. You can only go as high as your lowest um, population. So that means that whether I'm a five-star district, but if that population is not doing well, I will not be a five-star district. So that is important, and I've made it an area of focus. So I'm really proud of that because this year we actually saw success. When the kids actually acquire the English, they outperform everyone. So that is amazing, and we did not have that happen here before. So that, to me, is one of my proudest moments. But the secondary regs are definitely, are, you know, they're, they're headed, you know, they're, they're together because they're, they're really important to me, both of them. They all go in tandem. Yeah, no, all of the, it's, it's, it's that idea of, you know, like every kid needs something else. We have to be doing all of these things to really hit the needs of even just one child. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who have either sat in the seat that you're in or aspire to sit in the seat that you're in. And they listen and they just, I can't believe all the things you've done. I've talked to plenty of superintendents and state commissioners on this show, and I can't believe the list that you have as accomplished. But tell me, you know, it can't be easy. Like, what is hard about your job? What are the things that are keeping you up at night? What is hard about my job? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the things that keep me up, you know, we're going into this financial cliff um, across the nation and really figuring out how to... um, keep the momentum that we've gained because we have actually made progress during the pandemic. And with a lot of the supports going away, I worry about that. I worry about where we will be because we have demonstrated that with these supports, we can have better outcomes for our kids. So I worry about that. I I worry about um, our declining enrollment, shortage of teachers nationwide. You know, we we knew this was coming, but I think nobody really thought that it was going to come in this way. And at this time where we are all struggling to find teachers, I the other thing that keeps me up at night, our number of kids with IEPs has increased. The pandemic has really put um, a level of stress on our students that they have different needs than they did prior to the pandemic. So I, I worry about that. So long list. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, what I hear from you is you really care about kids and that that's why you do this role. But that in, in addition to that, it's very political. Tell us a little bit about that and your role. Yeah, I think that's the part that um, I have been most challenged with. <laughs> um, because I'm appointed, I, I came under a governor that had one vision. And in that, then it changed. I have a governor, a, a different governor who ha- has reappointed pointed me um, actually before he had to, which was pretty amazing. And he got a lot of pushback, I will tell you, because um, there are people that said, well, we're going to drive her out. And the politics of it all, I didn't really understand it when I took this job. But, you know, you're meeting with the governor, the speaker, the Senate president. You are meeting with representatives. You're meeting with everyone. So that's a part of your job. And in a place like Rhode Island, we're so small. Um, I come from New York. Sometimes you have these conversations with people or you don't. But here, you're so accessible that you're having these conversations and every word matters. Everyone you know matters. So it, it's a little different. It's, it's You're always on. And I think when we take on these jobs, we're not prepared for the political aspect. Nobody teaches us that. You know, the landscape changes. So you, you learn. You learn by doing. My first year, I did something that... Um, the speaker was not happy about. I created a position and positions are a big deal. You know, the, the, you can only have so many positions. And I created this position. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I had to ask 
for permission <laughs> and I had to go and say, Mia culpa, I'm sorry, but this is what I need. This is what we need. And, um, learn very quickly. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you a couple of questions on what you said. First of all, like, I love that you're saying that you, you, you know, you said it was your fault. I, I sounds a little bit like, you know, ask for forgiveness later, but, <laughs> um, I think that's great anyways. And, and I, and I think that what I hear from you is like, you'll do what you have to do for kids, which I, I think is really important. Um, that's let cool. me, what I heard you say is that when the new governor came in, it felt like there were people who wanted you pushed out. How did you know that? And what was that like? Oh, they were very public about it. They were public. Um, they thought that he wouldn't keep me. And he had a decision to make because he had to run for his position. He was the lieutenant governor. And then he became, he had to run for governor when this, um, the time was up. And they basically asked for him to make a decision whether I should stay or not. And he decided that he was going to support me. So much so that he signed my contract six months before it was due. So I really appreciate that because we work really well together. I'm somebody that delivers. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I move very quickly. And that's not usually how state departments of education work. We we work quickly. Like we we just promulgated regs in the last eight months. Like we're just moving. And that's advice that I've gotten for certain people. Just move fast. You know, <laughs> fast. By the time they figure out what you're doing, you're already halfway there. Right. Um, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So tell me this. One of the things that I heard you say is no one prepares you for this. And you had you didn't know just how political it would be. If you were going to give advice to somebody who either is heading into the sim a similar seat or wishes to, what would be the, what would that advice be? What's the best thing you've learned? A couple of things. I would definitely lean on other commissioners. I would definitely get to know the political landscape. That is something that is really important. Know who the key players are. And, you know, and then what line you're willing to stand behind or cross. And I'm pretty clear on where I am or where I stand. If it's good for kids, I will do it. If it's not good for kids, I'm, I won't get on board. And I've had to push back. So you have to really know what your North Star is so that you can navigate the politics because it really gets um, very difficult. So I would definitely really be clear on that and also understand that you're the educator they're politicians and they have a job they have a job that they need to do and sometimes it may be the same job or it may not be the same job and i was really naive i thought we were all doing the same job <laughs> i appreciate you being so honest and candid about that i think a lot of educators go through this where they're like oh i thought we were all doing the school thing and then and then they figure that out later so thank you for saying that i really appreciate it something you said is that you really need to know your north star and when I look at your history and where you came from, I would assume that your North Star has been tested quite a bit. Um, you're originally a teacher. Is that right? Absolutely. That's who I am still at heart. What did you teach? So I taught um, ninth grade English. I also taught kindergarten, first and second bilingual classes. Um, so I'm but my heart is really in elementary. So I'm an elementary school bilingual teacher always worked in one of the toughest neighborhoods uh, um, with kids that are underrepresented. That's where I'd like to do the work because that's where they need you most. They need the people that are going to go the extra mile. That that's, that's somebody did that for me. You know, I grew up on public assistance. My parents right. didn't have anything. I relied on the school system to basically get me a, a, where I am today. Like I, I know that it's possible if the supports are there, 
and that the education has a high rigor. I don't believe in, you know, making things easier. You know, there was a movement at one time in New York many, many, many years ago, all these poor kids, you know, let's not make it hard for them. Absolutely not. Like no, no one is making things easy for anyone. This is about rigor, making sure that the kids can achieve. And that's, that is what I do. And I try to get better every day. And it's really a commitment that I've made to the kids and the community and the parents. Yeah. And I think that you're saying something that I don't think it's said enough is that in so many situations, kids are counting on a teacher to be the person who not only educates them, but make sure they get fed, make sure they get clothing, what, all the things that, that a teacher can sometimes end up doing. And it sounds like you did. Um, in is it the South Bronx? Is that where you started teaching? Yes. So I started teaching. I am a TFA core member and I started teaching in the South Bronx in a very, very, very large school in a very um, challenged mm -hmm. district. It was District 12 in the South Bronx. And um, yeah, so but what was interesting is I, I have a godchild who was um, in my kindergarten class. Um, I really get involved. I taught um, parents how to you know, really navigate the system. So I was teaching them practical English, but to navigate the system, um, not just to say hello, but what does that look like when you have to go into a certain office? What, what, you know, what are the conversations you need to have? How do you have those conversations? So I really dedicated a lot of time to that. And, it, and the South Bronx was very, very challenging. But I'm from Washington Heights, and I eventually went there. Um, and similarly, um, very challenging in, in the heart of Washington Heights. I taught on 160th Street in Amsterdam, which was at the time um, really drug infested. And I have to tell you, these kids were just so amazing. And the story that I like to tell about that experience is I was trained on um, the science of reading through the Reading Reform Foundation. They spent a year with me. They mentored me. And my kids outperformed everyone, so much so that the district came in to see what was going on. You know, they, they thought maybe there was cheating. I, I don't know what they thought. But the kids really were doing the work. So I really believe in the science of reading because I experienced it firsthand. But I, I, I don't see limits in what our kids can do. I just don't. I can't. I don't see poverty as a limit. I see it as a challenge, but not, not a limitation. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so funny. We've had Perrine Weaver on and we've also had Ron Berger and both of them kind of had the same story where using science of reading, using good techniques, believing in kids, they saw this incredible achievement. And then five minutes later, the district or the state office was coming in and being like, this isn't possible. There's no way. And, and, and you can just see the difference between the heart of a teacher and the heart of a, you know, someone else is that a teacher was like, of course they were capable. Of course they could always right. do this. Um, so I love that. I love that story. Uh, and a thread that I'm noticing in the line between what you're doing now and what you did when you were in that classroom is this idea of seeing like the whole life. Like right now you're looking at high school students and, and their work matters to you. Their job after school matters to you. And they're, you know, in that in your in your job in New York City as a teacher, you it was there. The things they were doing outside of school, the, the buildings they had to go into, the offices they had to go into, all of that mattered. And I think I think that's a really cool thread that you've kind of um, built for yourself in your career, whether or not you see it. But um, at what point did you know? You wanted to do something other than teaching. At what point did it start thinking, all right, I love this, but there might be more. Tell me about that. Well, I think the, uh, the moment I did that, I was a classroom teacher in, in Washington Heights, and um, we needed to create some structures. I was a little frustrated because there were things that I wanted to get done, 
And the people in those positions actually had never really taught in the classrooms that we were in. So I became the coordinator of our dual language program. And then from there, I said, okay, I want to be able to run a school. I want to be able to make decisions um, from a teacher's perspective. And because, you know, a teacher cares about what happens in their classroom. Once you leave the classroom, you have to care about everything. And it's, it's, I encourage everyone to actually leave the classroom for, for a year because then you understand why decisions are made. Because when you're in the classroom, you're really frustrated because you're waiting for something or you need something or you want a decision made a certain way. And what has changed and what was important to me is that teachers had decisions. So when I ran a school, the teachers would make decisions about where the kids went, how they were placed. Like those things were important to me because I know the sense of frustration that I had. I just wanted to have a bigger impact. That's great. So, so, and it sounds like, you know, some doors open, you walked through to become a curriculum person. You ran a school. How long were you a principal? So I I was running this school for three years. And and let me tell you what the school was, which I think was interesting. It was sort of the overflow for the district and they would come in these buses. And in New York City, kids are really not bus. Only kids with IEPs are bus generally. And I would get these 25 buses that would come from all over this district. And all these kids would come. And then we, it, it was in trailers. <laughs> in no, really? <laughs> yes. You don't really think of trailers in New York City, right? Never. Yeah. And it was, um, so I was running the school and it was an annex to another school. And it was just really interesting because they all sent teachers to this building and um, they sent teachers that were usually accessed or teachers that I had teachers that didn't speak English at the time. So then I had to really work with them. You know, I think I like the challenging situations because there's a way to make everything work. And that's that was kind of that that's been my mantra. Just all right, let's do it. Let's figure it out. We can we can make this work. These kids need to be here so much so that they sent me fifth graders that had been in fifth grade for three years in a row. They had been. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I wow. have like fifth, yes, yes. That is incredible. Okay, I I feel like what I just heard you say is you like situations that are so broken that you can't help but find a solution for everything. Like you're just gonna start fixing things. Is that true? Is that what you you like that? Um, I say I don't like it, but I keep doing it, so I must. <laughs> that, that's so true. All right, speaking of keep doing it. So, at what point did you leave New York to come to Rhode Island? So I. I left in 2019. I was deputy commissioner in New York State. So before that, I went to the central office. I worked at at New York City Department of Education. Then I went to New York State. And then I came here. So and and it was hard because I was born and raised in New York City. I love New York City. I never thought of living anywhere else. And when this opportunity came up, I said, okay, you know, I can try it, but I had no idea how much I would love it, how much I would love Rhode Island, really feel that we are making this progress. I I, I just really didn't know. I, I had no idea that this was going to be my home. In my mind, I was going to do it for a short time and go back to New York. And that is really not where I am right now. I'm really committed to the work that I'm doing. My kids are, are love Rhode Island. Um, I go back to New York a lot because my mother's still there, but 
this is a really special place and this job really has the ability to change what education looks like. Wow, that's, you know what, I heard, um, I was I was listening to one of the things about Rhode Island and I heard, I think it was the governor who said, we are going to be at least as good as Massachusetts soon, right? Like that, is that, does that community, like community of state commissioners, like is that also really helpful and inspiring? You've mentioned it a couple of times in the role that you're in right now. Um, yes, I think um, the community that we have with the New England Chiefs, really amazing. Like we're really supportive. One thing that is important to know about Rhode Island, because we're so small and we're sandwiched between Connecticut and Massachusetts, we aspire to be like Massachusetts. Anything Massachusetts does, we want to do. And, <laughs> and perform them is one of them. That is our challenge. That is the goal that the governor has given us for 2030 is that we reach or surpass Massachusetts. Massachusetts is the highest performing state in the nation. Right. And um, we have the, um, the smallest gap between them that we've ever had. So we're closing that gap slowly, which is really amazing for us. Like, you know, everybody, when he said it, everybody was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? And then we set out a plan. We created a plan for the districts. We met with the districts where this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to support you. And what's interesting is that the governor has also made the mayors sort of accountable. Like, what are you going to do to help with the education system? Are you going to run after school programs, Saturday programs? So it's all hands on deck approach. And that is pretty amazing because I think we'll move a lot faster if education is the priority. And it really is in Rhode Island. That's awesome. What's the biggest difference between the state agency in Rhode Island and New York? Size. <laughs> Size, the number of staff. Um, I, I have like a quarter of the staff that I had, but, you know, you still are required to do the same things federally. Um, I think that is different. Um, the way we do business is very different. Like I said, New York, you're, certain people are not as accessible as they are here. You can go and meet with the governor. Like you yeah. can make a phone call and make an appointment and actually meet with the governor. So that is very different than what I was used to. Uh, what's the What's the biggest difference between working in like the NYC DOE and the state? Well, for me in New York City, when we worked there um, and <laughs> I worked under Joel Klein, um, we had these meetings that were 30 minutes, an hour if it was like a huge thing and we would sort of solve it. There were three or four meetings that we would have and that was it like we were expected to produce have outcomes the state is a little generally a little slower there's more bureaucracy more things to go through so that's a little different um but we're trying to move fast we're trying to change that here but that's the major difference new york city is a lot faster there's also a lot more resources in new york city there's oh there's more money there are more um agencies they're just it's, there's just more um, and we don't have that here. We don't have as big a philanthropy arm as New York City has. Um, education depends a great deal on philanthropy because we, our money is very restricted. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, it's something that I don't think people talk about enough about how much philanthropy plays a big role in trying to like cover the gaps um, that so many districts deal with. Okay, give me like a one or two liner comparison between being a principal, being in the district office, being in the state office. So... Being a director of a school, you know, it's very hands-on, very people. You're, 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 things are moving very quickly, but it is the people, right? You're, you're worried about the teachers, the students, the families. 
when you are in a city role, like when I was in New York City, it was then systems, structures. And then when you go to the state, then it's even more systems and structures and more hoops to be able to actually do the job. So the, fur the higher you go, the further and, and the more it expands. Um, so I try to really stay in tune with schools and teachers to remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm very, I'm a very big proponent of working with parents. I don't miss parent meetings. I go to parent <laughs> meetings. Right. They, they know I'll show up. That's awesome. All right. You know, what I love about your your story is you've done so many things. You've seen so many things. You, you know, try, tried things that I don't think when you started your career, you had any idea you would ever try. Um, and I think that's really inspiring. But I, I, I can tell, I, I know that it's exhausting and I'm sure that it's a lot of work. So when you think about, you know, what gets you up in the morning and what gives you hope, what is that for you? You know, I think what gets me up in the morning are my kids, my own personal kids, right? Because I, I know that, um, so I, my son, my 16 year old is on the spectrum and I see the challenges that he has, but I also see, you know, how he grows. Um, my daughter is very different. She is, you know, very outgoing. I, she's going to be on Broadway someday. <laughs> very different kids. And she's very, very, very committed. And she's very resilient. She just had brain surgery in September. And they said she wouldn't be able to go back to school anywhere from three to six months. And that first month mark, she said, get me a book bag with wheels on it. I'm going back to school tomorrow as soon as I see the doctor. And I, I just said, you know, Ayana, I don't know if that's possible. She was like, stop being negative. I'm going. And she went. She got clearance from the doctor. So what I see is the resilience in kids. And what they need is support to be able to do those things. And my kids remind me of that every single day. I want every kid to be able to have the opportunities that my personal kids have. That's what I fight for every single day. Okay. So you took over Providence. You went through COVID. You have changed high school. You've changed education for multilingual learners. You have a son on the spectrum, a daughter who's had brain surgery, a mother in New York that you helped take care of. I, I, I just have to ask, like, how do you do it? How, how like, what, <laughs> what is inside of you that I can, like, take? Because, wow, this is, it's just amazing. I have an incredible husband. That's, that's what it <laughs> is. I, in all honesty, he really keeps me um, grounded. And when I go home, we have a, a big problem. People like me, you know, taking off our work hat. He'll, you know, come home. He's like, I'm not your employee. I don't work for the school system. Yeah. So... You, you got to be a different person at home. And it took a long time for me to sort of understand that and because I need to decompress. So he reminds me to decompress, to think about other things other than work. And I'm very, very grateful to have him in my life. Uh, it's so lovely you say that. My husband once had lunch with Warren Buffett and uh, he asked him, like, if you had one piece of advice, what would it be? And Warren Buffett told him, marry well. <laughs> so uh, you, you and Warren Buffett are the same, I guess. Um, I, yeah. it's really been lovely talking to you and I just can't imagine the time that you're giving me. So thank you so much. This has been inspiring. It is exactly what I needed as my gift right before Christmas, before things get stressful. Oh, so I'm... thank you. Um, but before we go, we've got five questions that we ask everyone. And so I'm going to ask you those questions. And the first one is the episode, the, the podcast is called more than a test. And there's a lot of reasons why we called it that, but everybody hears that name and calls it something different. Um, when you heard more than a test, what did you think of? I thought of challenges, like, you know, we're constantly under pressure. 
It's, it's more than that. It's more than that moment or more than a test or okay. it's more than just that. That That is a moment in time. And there's always there's always tomorrow, right? There's always tomorrow to get better, to improve. So that's what I heard when I when I heard that. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Um, you know, we Amira is a literacy product with an AI reading tutor. And so we talk a lot about reading. And so we always ask our guests to tell us a lit moment. And what we mean by that is a moment of you in a book that is either your happy place or changed your life. So a moment of you in a book. Moment of me in a book. So it's going to sound a little hokey, but <laughs> I read You Happier by Dr. Amen. <laughs> and it and it really put me in that place because this was during the pandemic. It was, it was a lot going on. And it really sort of helped me ground myself and say, okay, all right, we can do this. We can do this. You just have to really make sure that you're okay to be able to do that. So that was, that was a good moment for me. That's awesome. A piece of technology you love. Oh my gosh, a piece of technology. So I'll tell you what I love in my house. I love my iRobot because yeah, it does my job. You know what? And then, it, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. It is such a relief to know that something is helping you clean, at least with all the things that you're doing. It is such a relief as a woman is like, all right, she's got the robot. That's the gut. Don't worry about my floors. <laughs> so that, that piece of technology at home. And then, you know, at work, AI is playing a really big role. So I think that that, that is exciting. The innovation, the possibilities are really exciting. And for us, we, we try to dig in. We have a committee that's being put together. We're trying to figure out how this could work for us, how we, how we can make it part of our everyday. So I'm really excited about it. Um, awesome. Uh, the best advice you've ever been given? Wait 24 hours before sending that email that you, you wrote very quickly. I feel like that's the advice I need to keep hearing every day. <laughs> that's right. That's a good one. Um, and a book you think everyone should read? Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel. He's the reason that I actually became an educator. I was going to law school. That was my goal. I was going to go to Columbia Law. I read this book and it changed my life. Changed my um, life. That's amazing. It wasn't that book for me. It was another one that's similar to it, though. But at one point, it was like law school or go get my first master's in education. And so it's funny that I, it's nice to hear that someone else had that moment. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. It sounds like you have none of it. So we really appreciate it. Have a really good holiday and thanks again. You as well. Thank you.